Well, good morning. <clears throat> that is truly my prayer, too, as I've been studying this. You know, a lot of this is theology, it's doctrine, and, um, you know, if all it does is just reach our head, and we are great, you know, people who can check the boxes off, uh, and we miss the whole purpose, we risk being people, as the New Testament says, that. You know, they confess him with their mouth, but in their actions, in their works, they deny him. You know, we can all say, oh, yeah, we don't get involved in government. We don't go to war and we don't take oaths. But yet our lives reflect Christians who are engaged in this world, who are friends of this world, who are concerned about the kingdoms of this world. And so I hope through these that we get a, uh, a burden for the kingdom of God. As I've been thinking about this um, I'm realizing that's the answer. The answer is getting a focus on the kingdom of God. Um, you know, when we think about Jesus and he first came on the scene, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Can you imagine uh, what that would have sounded like to these people and how interesting that would have sounded? What would that sound like today? As I was thinking about, you know, so often when we go out and we witness, we, we think like you should repent so you can go to heaven. You should repent so you don't go to hell. That's not what Jesus said. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is happening right now. You know, some, sometimes we think the word of kingdom, we think of churchy words, right? But think about it. In other words, the, repent or turn from your sin for God's government has come and is available to you now. God's reign, God's empire, as we sang in our song. I don't know if you noticed, but all those hymns were about God's kingship, his empire, his rule. Um, it was a long awaited promise. So I hope we can see that. Um, while I was back in Idaho, uh, I, I met a, a producer of a video. It's, he put out this video. Across, it's very popular among all the churches right now. It's called Enemies Within the Church. And it's trying to expose the churches, how many churches are going with this new critical race theory, social gospel, all this stuff. It's, it's infiltrating into the Southern Baptists. It's infiltrating into the colleges. And one of the things that stood out to me is they said um, – a couple things stood out to me, but one of them was um, in the colleges, in the Bible colleges, they are removing history. So you go, you go to become a pastor. You decide, I want to be in the ministry. You, you, you send, you know, maybe it's your child that goes off or maybe it's yourself. You go to go to this so many years of seminary where they're going to teach you how, how to interpret the Bible. And they're removing history. And they're replacing the history classes with Critical thinking. Now, what that means is, is we all sit around a big circle and we think about like it's critical theory. I think it's called. We all come up with, well, what do you think? And what do you think? And what do you think? And, you know, somehow with all of our great knowledge, we'll somehow come upon the right answer. Well, you know, history has a purpose in life. Looking back at how things went helps us realize if we've made they've made mistakes. Let's not make those mistakes again. Um, and so I want to do that. I. As much as I don't want to bore everybody here, I know not everybody loves history. Uh, I do like history. I mean, I could just sit and watch documentaries all day long on history. But um, I don't want to take too much time. But we need, I just don't see how we can't go through history to understand why we even call ourselves Anabaptists. We need to talk about history. Now, if you remember from the time, the first sermon we preached here on this uh, separation, Glenn asked, would you preach on separation of church and state? We talked about 
what, first of all, we talked about the atomic bomb. We talked about countries going to war with other countries and calling themselves Christian. Christian German soldiers fighting Christian English soldiers. Um, you know, all of the times of the Middle Ages with Catholics fighting the Protestants and all of this stuff that was happening. And wars have gone on and even been done in the name of Christ and the, the blemish that is brought. And so we, we read Jesus' teachings. What did Jesus teach about Christians being involved with government specifically? We drew the little thing up there, a wall of separation between the church and the state. Which way does it go? Does it go both ways? One way, what is it? Um, from there, we looked at Jesus' teachings. We just read them. I didn't do a lot of commentary, but we just looked at his teachings. Then we did, last time, we did a bunch of reading of the early church, and that was slow and methodical. But um, it was important. In fact, I was sitting down with that producer back in Idaho, and he made a comment. I was talking about, I was thankful, I was thinking about some of these things, and he said, um, I said something about Rome and, and how the Christians wouldn't have gotten involved in Rome before Antinicea. Um, they wouldn't have gotten involved in government. And he said this, he said, he said, well, that's because they couldn't. And thankfully, I had read the origin quote to Celsus, and he had said in that quote, even if you demanded us to fight for you, we wouldn't. And so um, it, it, it's, it's an interesting concept. We look back at this time and we say, well, we have a different government nowadays, so therefore we can vote. Therefore, we can get involved in government because you couldn't in Rome. We should be careful with that, with that mindset. So we looked at we looked at church history. What did they write? What did the early church, the first 300 years of Christianity, write? And we saw very unanimously there was no quotes of Christians getting involved in government, Christians fighting for the government. It was very much the opposite. Uh, then we looked at Constantine, the year 300 roughly, for about that period of time where basically the church was wed, was united with Rome. And it was the first union of church and state. And what did that bring? We saw Constantine killing one of his own sons. We saw their sons fighting. And at the end, Rome falls with the Germanic tribe coming in and they're Christian fighting the Christian tribes in Rome. And so this started this time of what we call the union of church and state. And what did it bring? I'll just draw this on a timeline here. So imagine Jesus had his teachings for these three and a half years. We had the cross. We had the book of Acts and all of those teachings. And we'll just put it all the way up to about 300. And here we have, I'll just put Nicaea. I don't know if I'm going to spell this right, but whatever, you'll get it. Um, and this period of time, for the first 300 years, it was unanimous. Christians did not get involved. We had Constantine. We'll just put a 100-year marker here. I'm thinking I'm way too fast here, so I'm going to have to squash some things. But uh, we'll put Constantine somewhere in here. Constantine. Probably spelled that wrong too. And then a theologian. A, a Theologians are people that are high up with knowledge about doctrine. And they like to explain why the Bible means what it does and, and how to interpret the Bible. And we have a lot of theologians today and theology can be a dangerous thing. We will not be judged on Judgment Day by our theology. We will be judged on our relationship with God. So therefore, how does your theology affect your relationship? How does it affect your obedience to Jesus? Well, a theologian named Augustine, some people refer to him as Augustus, I think, came on the scene. And he wrote a book called The City of God. And in that book, 
he has quotes, and I will not be able to go through all of them, but I'll read just a couple of them. He says, the purpose of all wars is peace. He says, those who engage in war in obedience to divine command or in conformity with his laws have represented in their persons the public justice and wisdom of government. And this capacity have put to death wicked men. Such persons have by no means violated the commandment. Thou shalt not kill. He's saying, if you did it under divine command, you haven't violated God's command. As a, in other words, if you've obeyed your king. Even in waging war, cherish the spirit of peacemaker, that by conquering those whom you attack, you may lead them back to the advantage of peace. Did you get that? Inside, you know you have this spirit of peacemaking as you're killing them to bring them back to peace. That's what Augustine, and this was in the year 400, was proposing as the theologian of the day. Um, he says, what is e this was amazing. What is evil about war? It is the death of some who will soon die anyway. Well, if we take that concept, why do we even try to help old people? I mean, you're going to die anyway. Let's, uh, let's just let you die. Um, he's going to die anyway so that others may live in peaceful subjection. In other words, we want to create an environment of peace so we'll go to war. They're going to die anyway and we can keep a nice peaceful area here. <clears throat> uh, here's another quote. It may be supposed that God could not authorize warfare because in latter times it was said by Jesus. Now listen to this. He, listen to what he's doing here. He says, in latter times it's said by Jesus, I say to you not to resist evil, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to the left. However, now here's his theology, theology kicking in. The answer is that which is required here is not a bodily action, but an inward disposition. So Jesus said all that stuff, but all that man's is just the heart. How many times have we heard that today? <clears throat> uh, the Lord commands patience when he says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. This may be the inward disposition, although it is not exhibited in bodily actions or in words. Although you're holding an AR and I'm about to shoot his brains out in your inside, you have an inward disposition of love and peace towards him. Okay, I mean... And, it could be interpreted that way, but we have to make a decision. What did Jesus really mean when he said these things? <clears throat> so um, he even goes on to say, and I'm going to just quote it really fast, but that if, if a soldier is fighting under a king and a king says, go kill your enemies, even if the king's command is wrong, like example, go kill all those women and children over there. If the soldier obeys his king, he is not under disobedience to God because he was obeying the king who God appointed. Wow. Um, that was Augustine in the year roughly 420-something. Okay, so as we go along in church history, we reach around 500. Somewhere in there, we reach infant baptism. Now, somewhere in here, some of the, some of the writings started going along with this idea of infant baptism. The earlier writings we had never had that. But as time goes, we start to have infant baptism becoming something uh, accepted by the church. And at this point, it's definitely more the Catholic church. Catholic just means general. Uh, and so um, <clears throat> the Catholic church had now approved that. Around the year, and that was around five, and this was around four, and this was around 300. Around the year... Uh, 
787, so we'll just say, yeah, in the 700s, we'll just say it was indulgences. Now, this is an indulgence. It's very complicated, but it could be boiled down to the idea that you can be forgiven, at least in this life, maybe not in the after, but you could, Catholic Church would have, by this point, thought of going to purgatory when you die. It's a place where it burns off your sins. And you would have to, for some sins you did, you might have to be there, let's say, a thousand years. But if you got an indulgence, well, your loved ones, maybe Becca died, and she's in purgatory, and I just want her to be out of there quicker. Like, I don't want her to be there a thousand years. I could get an indulgence and get her out of there sooner. Well, you know, they did different things at first, like if you do this pilgrimage, maybe you go to Jerusalem and you can get this indulgence. Well, later down in history, they started selling indulgences for money. And this is what actually one of the things that fueled the, the Protestant, Martin Luther, uh, Zwingli, they just saw the abuses of the Catholic Church. But they didn't say that you could buy God's forgiveness, but you could buy yourself out of purgatory. Um, so you have to be careful of understanding that, but... And then uh, at, so that was right around 700, and then around 787, we'll just put an 8 here, we had uh, veneration of icons. Uh, if you've ever been to a Orthodox church, you see all the little images, and like, you know, you see them kissing, like, you know, like little relics and crosses and images, and they'll stand and look at them. They're saying they're not worshiping them, but they are giving a lot of respect to them because of what it represents. Well, that started then, and I don't have enough time to go into all that. But then around the year 10, 1000, 1, we had the Crusades. Oh, I missed the Great Schism. Oops. Kind of do kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, the Great Schism, or the Great Church Split, we might say today. This would be the uh, Eastern, now it's funny, depending on whose perspective's writing this, if it's the Eastern Orthodox, they draw their line nice and straight, and the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church comes off of it. It's the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox come off of it, but uh, <laughs> I've seen different charts, and I think that's kind of funny. Uh, but we'll put Roman Catholic. So we had the Great Church Split, or the Great Schism, and that was right around the year 869, so somewhere in there. And then, so this is the Roman Catholic line. Um, we had the Crusades around the 1095. That's where they were going out. The Catholic Church was waging holy wars. They were going against the Turks, and I haven't studied all that in great detail. Uh, in 1200, the Bible was forbidden in the common language. It was in Latin, I believe, at this time. And so, you know, you'd have to go to Mass, which is where they would take communion, and somebody would read it all in Latin, you'd have no idea what they were saying, and, they, and the priest would tell you, you know, what it all means and how to interpret it. So it's forbidden. Well, this was kind of a bad mood. Um, some, that's not, I don't know how to spell that. But Wycliffe came along, and he was, he translated, from my understanding, the very first English translation. It came from Latin. He translated from the Jerome Latin Vulgate and created an English translation of the Bible. Well, the Catholic Church didn't like that. In fact, I think after he died, they were so mad at him, they dug back up his bones and burned them. That's how upset they were at him. Um, 
And then 1529, right about this time, was uh, selling. So we'll put 15. And Wycliffe was around 13. And the Bible Forbidden was around the year 12. And the Crusades were around the year 10. Um, right about this time in the 1500s, they were now selling indulgences. Okay. And that brings us up, fast forward through history. Um, a lot of Augustine's theology and thought had been, in, uh, had been accepted. And from there, it only had gotten worse, as we see. This union of church and state. Uh, the Catholic Church was performing inquisitions. Augustine was the one who came up with the idea from interpreting Jesus' passage that says, compel them to come in. Well, let's use force to, uh, to whip people in a sense, in a spiritual sense, bring pain to bring them back into the fold like, like a shepherd would do to a lamb. And so they would use that to, to actually use violent force against heretics, against people who uh, were, were going against the church. And, and as we've heard many times, the Anabaptists who were, um, who were persecuted were persecuted with this mindset. We're trying to correct them and bring them back into the church, even if it's in purgatory, after we've killed them. And so around this time, we had what's called the Reformation, where, as you can see, all this stuff was going on, and people were getting frustrated with the Catholic Church. You know, we're, we're worshiping, in a sense, icons, we're selling, indult we're selling forgiveness of sins, we're baptizing babies, we're going off in the name of God and the Holy Wars, we don't have the Bible in our own tongue anymore, and the Catholic Church had really progressed into a church of works anymore. It was no longer a relationship with Jesus. If you lived in a, lived in a given area, you were Catholic. As long as you took Mass, you took the communion, you're good. You know, that did something in your body, it saved you. By taking that, just make sure you're there every week and you know to take the mass and don't do anything against the church and you'll be good. So about this time, there was the Protestant Reformation. Uh, right around 1525 and 1530, I'm just going to draw this out like this a little bit to try to give us some room. It's not really going to be equivalent in time, but I'll put um, in Switzerland we had a guy by the name of. Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, and he was starting to write papers against the abuses of the Catholic Church. And at the same time, right around the same years, we also had Luther in Germany. And he was writing things and even posted on one of the big cathedrals a uh, 95 thesis from my understanding. That's where he posted it on the door. I think in Wittenberg, if I remember the name right. And it had 95 problems he had with the Catholic Church. Boiling it down, he was upset that they weren't going by the Bible anymore. So he called that sola or only scripture. He was upset that they <clears throat> weren't we're teaching works instead of grace, so sola grace. Um, and he was upset with the indulgences being sold. And so he was starting this Protestant protest. He was protesting the Catholic Church, and he wanted it to be reformed. And I really should have written this more like this. Because 
of what we have here, Luther and Zwingli. Okay. And so, now get this. This is amazing to me. Both these reformers started off non-resistant. Started off saying we can't use the force of the government. Both of them started that way in the early 1520s, 1519. I've got quotes here from both of them. <clears throat> if I can find my paper here. too many papers. I think my papers are, are out of order. Um, yeah, I can't find it. It's somewhere among these papers. So if you want to hear the quotes, I can prove it to you. But for the sake of time, so they can't find my paper, or maybe it's right here. Actually, it is. Okay, Luther wrote, I have taught that a Christian should abstain from violence and should not fight to recover his belongings of which he was robbed. Did you hear that? He's robbed. He shouldn't fight to protect his belongings. Luther. And he said this. Why do, you not, why do you not rebuke Christ who taught this? He was writing in rebuttal to somebody for his teaching. That's how Martin Luther started. Why don't you go ahead and rebuke Christ for teaching non-resistance? Um, he also wrote against the Pope. And he said, the Pope teaches that it's right for a Christian to meet violence by violence. Contrary to Christ's teaching, he says... Whoever will take thy coat, let him also have thy cloak. Wow. Ulrich Zwingli in 1522 wrote, Consider from the Christian point of view, it is by no means right to have part in war. This man died on the battlefield. Zwingli died on the battlefield defending his nation. But what did he write? It's by no, uh, by no means right to have part in war. According to Christ's teachings, we should pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. And if any aggressor smite us on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, and he goes on. Christ even commands us not to go to law. or, um, But he taught us to follow his example. So these guys started off non-resistant. But as they progressed into their reformation, I can't for sure say what their motive was. But... Having a, a state religion, having the arm of the state is a powerful thing. Having the state behind you. I mean, it sounds logically pretty good that, hey, Lutheran will be the state religion. If you live in, uh, if you live in Germany, you'll, you need to be Lutheran, right? And so as time progressed, he became wed with the state. He became unionized with the state. And the same with Zwingli started off. As time progressed, at that time, Zwingli was trying to decide what to do. And around 1520, he was starting to take things to the city council to get their opinion. And he had some students. And by the way, you need to know this because we all claim to be Anabaptists, right? Why are we Anabaptists? Well, this is why. He had some students. And this is called the radical wing of the Reformation. If you ever see it, it's called the radical. This third wing is the radical wing. We had the Lutheran and the the Switzerland's Wingley Calvin wing. But the radical wing, he had some students. They were called, they referred to themselves as the Swiss Brethren. And they said, Zwingli, uh, we don't think that you should be baptizing babies. Where's that in the New Testament? Well, Zwingli listened to them and he went back to the city council. 
to get their opinion. Is that a good move? I mean, can you imagine us making church decisions, going down to Halsey, city council? What do you guys think? <clears throat> well, that's what he did. And the city council ruled on Zwingli and Sykes. And long story short, they were banished out of the country. And it came to a point where um, they, they actually made a rule saying if anybody is baptized as an adult, it will be punishable, I think they said, by death. That's how strong the rule became in the Switzerland Geneva area. So we had these three reformations. Now, what I want to point out with this is what were they trying to do? When these two guys were trying to reform the church, they were, were very heavily influenced by this guy. In fact, if you get around Presbyterians, you'll hear him quote Augustine a lot. Augustine was the first one to really put out a lot of theology, including predestination. How many of you heard of predestination? You know, the sovereignty of God. You hear all these terms. That was a lot touted by this guy. And the Presbyterian Church was in Scotland, and they were heavily influenced by Calvin's teachings. Calvin was the, after Zwingli died on the battlefield, Calvin was the next pastor, right? So we'll put him here. All of these or these two, three people, were influenced by Augustine. The Anabaptists were influenced. They wanted a more radical reformation. They wanted to go back to the, the root, to the original early church. They wanted to go back to the teachings of Christ. So at the end of the day, you might ask yourself, why are we Anabaptists? Why do we say we're Anabaptists? Well, there's a lot of denominations out there to choose from. There's a lot of interpretive models we can choose from. As I look at that, I was convinced in my heart that it was this interpretive model that made the most sense. These guys have been basically, I mean, yes, we all, all these denominations have their faults and failures. But they've been around for 500 years holding to the basic tenets to go back to the original teachings of Christ and take them literally. There's still groups today that say we will not get involved in government, we will not go to war for government, we will not take oaths, just like the first 300 years of Christianity did. Now, I want to go a little farther into church history. Now, this is disputed, and I don't know for sure. I've heard Mennonites, a Mennonite college, say this statement. But then I've heard Baptists who say, no way. But where did they come from? I don't know uh, for sure. But I'm going to say right now, because even Baptists I've been around claim they've come through Anabaptists. They have a little book called The Trail of Blood. And they show all the lines of people they've come through. And guess who's in there? The Anabaptists. They, they claim they came through the Dauntonists and the Waldenses and all the way through the line. So we're going to put a little line off here called the Baptists. Now, Baptists, are not like these two. Baptists believe in adult baptism, believer's baptism, and that's what this radical wing was responsible for bringing in. They also believed in religious freedom. These two did not believe in religious freedom. They believed that, you know, Calvin instituted in his town of Geneva a very, like, the kingdom of God has come. 
we're going to institute the Old Testament Mosaic law as its rule, there were people put to death for dancing in, in, in Geneva. Think about this. Like, they, they found a, a note. A little, like, okay, none of you do this. But if any of you bring up a little letter after here and put it under here about why you didn't like my sermon. Well, if we were in Geneva and I was Calvin, we would send – he set up a, like its own little judge, like a little courthouse made up of ministers. And they would hear the case, and then they, they, they interrogated him through violence, and then they killed him because he spoke against Calvin. Think about that. that that's what – they were trying to institute. This is what we're learning from church history, that when, when they tried to bring the kingdom of God into a carnal, fleshly way, with the sword, with judges, with all these things, and, and, and using uh, violence to correct wrong, this is what we got. The Baptists believed in religious freedom. In fact, this country was heavily, heavily influenced by, I believe it was Rhode Island, who was a group of Baptists, um, Forgetting the name of the guy that was Baptist and was writing and was very much responsible for our Bill of Rights in this country. We have freedoms that were actually inspired by Baptists, which in a sense were inspired by Anabaptists. Um, Baptists Anabaptists believed in religious freedom. Anabaptists believed in um, separation of church and state. Anabaptists believed in no baptizing babies. It's believers' baptism. Okay, so where am I trying to go with this? So this actually, Baptist, I think, are the, one of the, after Catholic, is one of the largest denominations in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Well, so that kind of brings me to my era. In about 18-something, and I have it over my notes, we're going to put Darby way up here. Man, I'm really stricken. <laughs> and he came up with a a framework of how to interpret the Bible. In that framework, he had some distinctives. Those distinctives were A, Bob won't like this, Israel and the church are distinct. And Israel still has a future and promises are still, that all those literal promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are literal and they are coming again in the future, right? That's not right, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's one of your things, but that's what he brought in. It's called dispensationalism. One of their distinctions was to clearly see the difference between Israel and the church and that God's not done with Israel. It's coming in the future. And, and Darby was the one that came up with the pre-tribulational rapture idea. You know, the church will be taken out and then God will set up his kingdom and, and do all this stuff. And it was interesting, and I, I'm never going to find the quote here, but... One of the distinctions of, uh, of Darby and dispensationalism was this. We will not interpret the New Testament as changing anything in the Old Testament. It's just reaffirming everything in the Old Testament. I was like, wow, that, that explains it. There's nothing changed except theology. What you'll find with most of this, all of this, and I, I think David Brousseau coined it, it's an Old Testament morality with a New Testament theology. What that means is when you had Geneva and they were setting up the kingdom of God, you know, they went to the Old Testament. Calvin himself said this. We should go to the Old Testament for our morality. In fact, Calvin said nothing's changed. So when we look at the Old Testament, we say, well, God said to do this, then we should do this. We should kill them. 
you know, we should stone adulterers, we should go to war, we should defend our country. It, it was just an old te- we look to the Old Testament for how we walk and act, but we look to the New Testament for our theology. Okay, ceremonies are done away with. Um, we're now forgiven by the perfect blood of Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus is the Son of God and is God. That's all theology. See the difference? Morality we find in the old. Theology we find in the new. That was heavily inspired uh, and believed by these guys and now these, this guy. On the other hand, Anabaptists say this, the New Testament is our rule and practice, is our rule of faith and practice. In fact, and we're going to read this. Um, just give me a moment. Okay, here is the Swiss brethren. So here we were. We had this break off the Radical Reformation. They got together and they had a, a meeting. And they said, what do we believe? And as they started off, they didn't all agree. But they sat together and they worked it out and they discussed it and they prayed. And this is what they came up with. And I I can't read all of them, but they came up with seven distinctions for the Swiss brethren. One, baptism, adult baptism. Two, their view on excommunication. Now, remind you that this church, this church had very much abused excommunication. They had done the inquisitions. They had killed people, burned people over excommunication so they had something to say about that three they had something to say about communion about guarding the communion table about not just like the catholics would have a mass you know just here's the table anybody who comes through as well it doesn't matter what you're doing in your life as long as you just take the mass it saves you no they had something to say about communion they said you can't partake of the lord's table and the table of demons you had to be living like Jesus to, to take communion. That's something they came up with. Number four, they believed in the separation of the saved people. It wasn't this idea that, you know, we can just live our lives how we want and someday we'll be in heaven. They actually named in their, in their confession, you will not attend Catholic services, meetings. You will not go to, the, you will not attend their church. You will not go to drinking houses, bars, and you will not participate in civic affairs. Wow. They talked about pastors in the church. By this point, popes and priests and bishops were just, they were, it didn't matter anymore if they were evil or wicked. They were just, that's their office. No, the Anabaptist said, you can be deposed. You have to live a holy life. And they talked about the sword and they talked about the oath. I want to read you just quickly what they said about the sword on the sixth point of their confession. They said concerning the sword. Now, listen to the statement. Listen to the sentence. The sword is ordained of God outside the perfection of Christ. That simple little sentence. It's ordained of God outside the perfection of Christ. I love how that is put. That means we don't deny that God uses heathen governments. You know, classic pacifism says government needs to change. Government needs to put down their sword. You'll see these very liberal uh, Anabaptists go and do rallies and say, put down your guns, don't go to war anymore. And they're trying to convince heathen governments from not fighting. What do the Anabaptists say? The sword is ordained of God, but it's outside 
the perfection of Christ. That means you can't say you're a Christian and fight with the sword, but God uses non-Christians to fight with the sword. Um, it punishes and puts to death the wicked and guards and protects the good. In the pre- perfection of Christ, however, only the ban, that's the, another word for excommunication, is used for a warning and for the excommunication of the one who has sinned. So they said the only thing we can do as Christians is to put somebody out of the church. We can't use a sword. We can't use violence. We can only, as a church, put somebody out if they're in sin. Now, it may be asked by many who do not recognize this as the will of Christ for us, whether a Christian may or should employ the sword against the wicked for the defense and protection of the good. Is that not what we ask sometimes? Could we not defend ourselves? Or for the sake of love, our reply, now this is after they've come together and they've met and they prayed, our reply is unanimous. And he says this, Christ teaches and commands us to learn of him, for he is meek and lowly in heart. And Christ says to the heathenish woman who was taken in adultery, not that one should stone her according to the law of his father, but in mercy and forgiveness and warning to sin no more. I, w- I was shocked by that. I, if somebody would have asked me to defend non-resistance, I would have like quoted, don't resist evil, love your enemies. They didn't even quote that. It showed me their whole goal was to follow Christ's example. Not just his words, but they looked, every one of these things, as you read through the Swiss Brethren Confession, was to follow his example. They would say, well, Jesus didn't do this, so we didn't do it. Should we become a king? Well, Jesus says Jesus never became a king. In fact, they tried to make him a king, but he didn't do it, so we won't do it. They made Jesus the rule of their faith. You look at Jesus' life, that's the perfect example. That's the perfect dictionary to say, what should we do as Christians? Secondly, it may be asked whether a Christian should pass sentence or maybe be in a jury, pass sentence on somebody in worldly disputes. And then he says this, Christ did not wish to decide or pass judgment between brothers and brother in the case of the inheritance, but refused to do so. Therefore, we should do likewise. It's just so simple. It's just that Jesus didn't do it, so we don't do it. Um, thirdly, may be asked concerning the sword, shall one be a magistrate? Can you be a governor? Can you be in the government? The answer is as follows. They wished to make Christ king, but he fled and did not view it as the arrangement of his father. Thus shall we do as he did and follow him. And so shall we not walk in darkness. Wow. It's just so not like, I, I don't know how to say this, but when Calvin wrote his theology books, they were volumes, masses of books. This is like the Schleinheim Confession could be on one page, like maybe a page and a half. So simple. Uh, <clears throat> he, he Also, he himself forbids the employment of the force of the sword, saying the worldly princes lord it over them, but shall not be so with you. And then he quotes Peter saying, Christ has suffered, not ruled, and left us an example that you should follow. And so, and did you hear that? Christ suffered, not ruled. And they put that in there, not ruled. Christ suffered, and so should it be for you. It's, this is a quote from Peter. Christ has suffered and left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And then they put, not ruled. 
Finally, it will be observed that it is not appropriate for a Christian to serve as a magistrate because of these points. The government magistracy is according to the flesh. It's carnal. It's, it's, uh, our weapons are not carnal. But the government is carnal. It's fleshly. But the Christian is according to the spirit. Their citizenship is... Uh, sorry, it's talking about the other people, as in worldly people. Their citizenship is in this world, but the Christian citizenship is in heaven. The weapons of their conflict, the worldly people are carnal or fleshly, but the Christian's weapons are spiritual. So simple of how they came up with following Jesus. So at the end of the day, we have these different ways we could interpret the Bible. That's what it comes down to. It all comes down to what is called as hermeneutics. We all carry the same Bible. They all say love. I mean, not one translation translates it different. Like, no, don't love your enemies, love your neighbor. Like, they all say love your enemies, no matter what translation. So we have to decide between a hermeneutic. We have to decide between a framework of how we are going to look at the Bible. We all wear lenses. We should just admit that, right? Everybody hasn't been influenced by sermons, books, culture, uh, churches, people. We've all done that. And so we, when we read the Bible, we say, yeah, but, right? We all do that. We have a verse we think through. That's your hermeneutic. That's your way of interpreting a framework. And so we can, we can, we can go down the path of, do we want to interpret it like the Romans, the Roman Catholics? They interpreted Jesus' teachings like this. You know, we have Christians and we have disciples. If you want to be a true disciple, if you want to love your enemies, why don't you go join a monastery? You know, be a monk. You know those guys, oh, you know all that stuff. <laughs> go do that all day long and go way out in the desert somewhere and you love your enemies. But the rest of us normal Christians will have normal lives and will fight wars and things like that. But in other words, Jesus following Jesus literally is a subset. It's a higher calling. But the Bible, let's, what does the Bible say? The Bible says the, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. It doesn't say there's two of them. It says they were all called disciples. And one day somebody said, we should call these guys Christians because they act like Jesus. So let's call those people they call disciples as Christians. That's how it happened. Christians aren't, there's not a subset. I like how Dean Taylor says it. Can you... Can you really follow Jesus without following Jesus? Like, it doesn't work. But that's, that is how, how it would be taught and, and taught around, in other words. Zwingli and Luther, their hermeneutic, their interpretation was more along the lines of the Old Testament morality. They would say, Jesus really didn't come to change anything. He just came to re affirm the Mosaic law and to make it a little more clear. The problem is the law, the Mosaic law said, love your neighbor, right? This, and, and when I was watching the just war debate, they were saying, well, we kill our enemies to save our loved ones. We don't do it out of vengeance and evil. 
but we, we doing because we love. But let's analyze that. I'm killing my enemy because I love my neighbor. Is that all, not Old Testament morality? Am I really loving my enemy? You see? I'm killing them because I love my country or I love my family. But Jesus never didn't say just love your country and your family. He said love even your enemy. How do we, how do we reconcile that? <clears throat> the hermeneutic of the Baptists were this. Jesus came to offer a kingdom. The kingdom of God. In fact, they're right about that. But the Jews, so, so everything in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. If, you, if you're meek, you'll inherit the earth. If, you, um, if you're a peacemaker, you know, you shall, what, how does it go, Bob? I knew you'd have this one memorized. And inherit the earth, the meek shall inherit the earth, and peacemakers get what? Yes, okay. So you do this, you get this. You do this, you get this. And, and the Baptists will say, wait, we're not a works religion, right? We're a grace religion. So this is the Baptist I was raised in. I'm not going to say it's all Baptists. It's the independent fundamental Baptists. It's the Calvary chapels, those kind of people. And so what they will say is, it's called, uh, it's called the postponement theory. The kingdom was offered to Israel. Jesus wanted to set up a kingdom right here, right now, with the sword, defending, going against, and set up an earthly kingdom. But the Jews rejected him. And so Jesus said, well, hmm, that didn't work. So we will put this off into the future. We'll shelve it, in a sense. Put it off here sometime in the future. And we will usher in the dispensational age of grace. A different dispensation. Dispensation means like you're pouring out. So God says, we're going we're to change up the plans a little bit. We're going to enter in the age of grace, the church age. And we're going to use this to provoke Israel back to me. So way down here, they'll actually come back and we can get back to what the original plan was, which was loving your enemies and lying, laying with lambs and things like that. So for now, we're in the church age. Therefore, all of the teachings of Jesus aren't for us, except, you know, forgiveness of sins and things like that. But any morality things... We can look back to the Old Testament and get our hermeneutic. But all that really crazy stuff, like loving your enemies and not divorcing or marrying, we'll save that for some time in the future. Now, I ask you this question. Is the devil not super smart? What has happened is we have shelved the teachings of Jesus. We have taken, we have, what he has done is whether it's through the Roman Catholic Church, which says, Discipleship is a higher calling. Or it's through the Protestant Reformation, which says Jesus was just trying to interpret Moses' law. Or it's the dispensationalists, which say, well, it's sometime in the future. In the end, it's neutralized. It's relegated all of Jesus' commands down to nothing different at all. That's not what the Anabaptists saw. The Anabaptists saw a kingdom being set up. And we have 10 minutes. We'll get as far as we can. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> and um, let's look in verse 44. Now, there was a dream. And they saw the statue. 
and it was a big man, big idol kind of thing. And the head was of gold, and the chest was of silver, and the belly and thighs were brass, and the, the, iron, the legs were of iron, and the feet were of iron mixed with clay. And the king saw this, the king of Babylon saw this and was, what does this mean? So he came to Daniel and asked for a meaning of this. And look at, um, look at what he says, 44. He goes through and before 44, he explains all the different kingdoms. He says, the first one, so what you saw, king, and he goes down the list. He says, there was a head of gold and he says, that was you. Um, and then he says, thou art the head of gold. Then he says, after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. It was silver, not as good as gold. And then he says, and then after that, a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule all the nation. Verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. Okay, that was Babylon. And then it was Medo-Persia or Medo-Persia, however you say that. And then it was Greece. And then it was Rome. Now, who was ruling when Jesus came on the scene? Rome. Rome. 44. And in the days of these kings, so here's, here's this thing. In the days of these kings, we're down to Rome now. What does it say? Shall the king, God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall be left to other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. So he sees in this dream, this rock that God carved out without hands. And it dashes right here at the feet. And this, this whole statue comes falling down, this whole idol. And then he says, in the days of these kings, God is going to set up a kingdom. And it's going to dash this thing. And it's going to rule forever. Now, to go to uh, Matthew chapter um, 4. Keeping that in mind now. Matthew chapter 4. Now, they have this in mind. I mean, these Jews, they know. They know about this Daniel. They know about these prophecies of a kingdom. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, or you will all go to hell. Repent, so you can go to heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see what his focus was? His focus was the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Turn to Mark. Many of us wonder, what's the gospel? We're supposed to preach the gospel. Isn't it the good news that Jesus died and that, you know, he, uh, he was raised and then we can all go to heaven? That's what we want to believe in, and it is part of the gospel. But what is the gospel? <clears throat> Mark 1. Verse um, 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. 
And we can go through, if we wanted to spend the rest of the time, showing how the gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means, of the kingdom. At one point, Jesus says, uh, go out and preach the kingdom of God. And he baptize and heal and all these things. And then it says, and they went out and preached the gospel. It's that simple. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom. It encompasses heaven someday, but it encompasses now the kingdom of God now. This was a very political statement, a very political statement when we say the kingdom. It's like the word government. If I say the government of God is at hand, change your allegiance, change your allegiance from America to God's kingdom. It'd be like if we were all raised in a communist country and I said, all our life we had been poor, the government had been socialistic, and I found out about this new kingdom called America. And I found a way to get to America. And I was telling all my friends of the good news. We can live in a capitalistic society where we can all own our own businesses and we don't have to be told what to do anymore. Wouldn't that be great news? Like, you'd be happy if I could get you to America. It's the same idea. When, when, when Jesus was coming on the scene, he was preaching God's kingdom. And I think if we can get this picture, we can understand what the Anabaptists were thinking. And we can understand what the early church was thinking. <clears throat> it says, Jesus went all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew, he says this, I must preach this all over the world and then the end shall come. The kingdom shall be preached all over the world. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached all over the world and then the end shall come. The kingdom of God is supposed to be being preached by us and it's supposed to be advancing. <clears throat> In Luke, Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God. And listen to this, for this is the reason I was sent. We all think, why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? To die so we can be saved, right? That's what we think. But his purpose was to preach the kingdom. <clears throat> So I have no way to finish this, but, and I don't know if I'll go another week. We'll just pray about that. <laughs> um, but I think the answer here is our focus. If we're not excited about the kingdom of God, then I would, I heard John D. Martin said this, so I, I put the blame on him. You should question if we're even a Christian. That's a harsh statement, but it's a true statement. The Spirit of God drove Jesus, it said. He was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. And if the Spirit of God is in our heart, and Jesus is, was about his kingdom and driven by the Spirit, is the Spirit driving us today about the kingdom of God? If it's not, it's either seriously quenched or not there at all. And that's a hard that 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 really had me set back as I thought about that. I think if we put our focus on this rock that came down and burst these other kingdoms and we were about the kingdom of God, we were excited about the kingdom of God, we wanted to learn more about the kingdom of God, we wanted to advance the kingdom of God, voting fighting its wars, the nations, the worlds of darkness wars all of that would become trivial to the view of 
being in God's kingdom and putting all of our focus. Was it not Jesus that said, seek first the kingdom of God? We've been translated out of darkness, it says in Colossians, into the power of, I mean, into the kingdom of his dear son. Wasn't it Jesus that go into all the world and baptize them and teach them to what? Obey everything I've commanded you? So we need to um, we need to seriously think about these things of these different interpretations. How are we going to stand before the Lord one day? Are we going to be is he going to say, well done, you've been building my kingdom. You've been focusing and seeking first my kingdom. Or is he going to say. We were really concerned about everything going on in the kingdoms of this world, of America, of Whatever kingdom you've set up, <clears throat> I'll stop there. But Lord bless you all. Thank you, Jeremy, for those.